Hello and welcome to the Social World Podcast. I'm Dave Niven, and today we're a bit of a landmark. This is podcast number 50. A year just seems to have gone so quickly. Now, over the year, I've talked on many occasions about child protection matters, about safeguarding, about the lack of uh, inquiries that, that, that were announced and never happened. At last now, we've at least got some momentum going with the historic abuse inquiry that the Home Secretary announced, and with a new chair, hopefully we'll get cracking, I'm told, as early as next month in March. I've been interviewed so many times about child protection and about particular events or issues or, or, or cases on uh, broadcast, uh, news, television, radio, BBC, whatever. I thought I ought to turn the tables and I ought to try and actually have a look at a particular case on this podcast. And so what I've done is I've invited an investigative reporter who's been looking into a particular case uh, in, BBC, in the BBC, and in this case in the area of Hereford and Worcester, a case of historic abuse at what was used to be called a, um, an approved school called St Gilbert's that was run by the de la Salle Order of Catholic Brothers, teaching, a teaching brotherhood. Now this was a place where um, young people before 1975 used to be sent, young men, for who had committed like misdemeanors or petty crime, they were called juvenile delinquents, they were slightly out of order or had distressing or disturbed backgrounds. And they were sent there to uh, have discipline installed into them and for a punishment for the petty crime that they'd committed. But this place, according to all the reports that have been gleaned so far by Pam Caulfield, who I'm interviewing today, was a real horror story. The um, sexual and physical abuse that these young men suffered was horrific. Um, two of them have incredibly bravely come forward and talked about it now. They're in their late 60s. Um, one, a guy called Joe, was the first to come forward. And he lives in Northern Ireland now. And um, he's been keeping this secret for 55 years. He said that uh, he was sent to St Gilbert's after being convicted of vandalism and he uh, says that he was raped by the headmaster, sexually abused by another brother and by a visiting priest. He remembers hearing screams as he lay in his dormitory at night. He remembers being beaten, he remembers blood running down his legs and he remembers being frequently interfered with. Just an absolute and utter horror story. And it's not alone. Um, Pam Caulfield, the investigative reporter who's been a presenter, reporter, producer with the BBC in Hereford and Worcestershire for about seven years, has really dug deep down into this case and has identified something like 18 or 19 um, victims of abuse at St Gilbert's as was. And although it's closed, it closed in 1985, a long time ago, it still has got this enormous great psychological legacy with so many men uh, who haven't been able to deal with it properly, haven't been able to come forward and are probably sitting out there wondering how ever in their lives and what's left of their lives they're ever going to get achieve, to achieve closure. So I'm going to interview Pam today about the case. We're going to look into it. Now, Today, the De La Salle Order of Catholic Brothers still exists. They are um, operational all over. They, they're, they're in Northern Ireland as well. Um, but they have issued a statement about um, 
what happened then, utterly condemning any activity that was uh, being described that went on then and saying that today they are totally and utterly committed to child protection and safeguarding. But to be honest with you, that's not really what we're interested in. What we're interested in is what happened. And this inquiry, the National Historic Abuse Inquiry that has been announced and ought to be getting going very soon, it's this is a perfect case for them to drill down into and investigate because so many times along the way, people were told, did nothing. Police were told, did nothing. In fact, caused things worse to happen. Boys ran away because they were so terrified they were brought back and abused even further. Uh, I mean, the atmosphere then, we all know that there was a different world then in terms of child abuse, but it still makes terrible hearing. The, the story is still a terrible one. So, possibly without any further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Pam Caulfield. Well, thanks for joining us today, uh, Pam. How are you? All right? Oh, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I am fine. It's really nice that you could join us. Now, what I want to ask you about, firstly, is how the matter came to light that that you're investigating on behalf of the BBC. Well, the BBC had been putting in freedom of information requests to access some files that were in the um, the Home Office to do with approved schools and other institutions that were uh, due to be locked for, for many years under a 70-year embargo. And uh, one of the ones that was unlocked was to do with St Gilbert's, and it was about um, a former deputy headmaster who had actually been um, convicted on six counts of sexually abusing boys way back in you know the early 60s. And, and I just thought at the time, uh, this can't be you know the only thing it just seems sort of strange that only one has come to light so um it was just curiosity really um i was producing the breakfast program at the time and sort of in between sort of you know doing um uh, you know my other duties i was ringing around some solicitors uh, around the uk just asking them if anybody had come forward um from you know st gilbert's school to report anything that had happened to them um i was also looking up on uh, internet forums um and i was quite surprised Surprise there to find out how many people had been trying to sort of reach out, not just from St Gilbert's schools, uh, school, but other schools too. But there was quite a lot on there from former pupils saying, you know, who went there and, and you know, mentioning different brothers and some sort of yeah. horrendous abuse that had seemed to happen to them. And that really shocked me that, that people hadn't seemed to pick up on this before. OK, let, let's, that's fine. Let's get this clear then absolutely for people listening that St Gilbert's was what was called an approved school and it was managed by the de la salle order um, of catholic brothers and they ran it under the governance of the home office what sort of time scale when which part of the, the the which decades are we talking about here well, I found it went all the way back to 1945, and that's actually when the school opened uh, here in Worcestershire. It was actually in Suffolk before that, um, and I actually managed to trace back all the way, as I said, to 1945, uh, people who was there then. It was actually his daughter that had tried to sort of look into it um, for him, and she'd written in the past both to the Home Office and, and to the Delisal Order, you know, trying to get answers, and that was back in 2007. There was just a note from her 
on one of these forums um, saying that she was wanting to write um, you know, a book for her dad. Um, and that's how you know, I originally tracked them down. Um, it always seems to happen with, with this side of things that, as you can imagine, people don't trust you as a journalist when you mm. first get in contact with them and especially when it's over something like this and and as you said you know it's it's been going on for so long and and these people feel like they haven't had answers for such a long time they're very wary um but it was after sort of you know building a relationship you know uh, speaking to people sort of emailing people over a long period of time that finally they you know reach out to you and, and, and speak to you and tell you their story so how many people um in the course of your investigation how many people have you come across so far that you reckon were survivors of abuse let's be clear about this um at at, at that particular location well there's more than 20 people i've spoken to um, and it's not just um sexual abuse it's it's physical abuse as well and um, and that's something that also surprised me during the, the course of this investigation just quite how severe that side of things could be um i think a lot of people have the perception that you know canings in those days that was accepted but we're not talking about just normal canings um it, it went much further than that i mean i wouldn't want to go into detail for people because some of it was really quite i mean i can describe it as sadistic some of the accounts that you know people have told me about um you know so it, it's difficult to kind of um sort of tell apart between you know physical and and sexual yeah. abuse and it was happening uh, both both sides of things were happening but actually when you come to the physical side of things it surprised me just how severe that was as well and and just what effect that had had on people too well you're right we don't have to be too graphic about it but i think to be fair we've got to indicate that we're talking about severe beatings of young people that left them bleeding sometimes horrifically mm-hmm. bruised and bloody and it was on a regular chronic basis as if that was the actual kind of um, the whole ethos of um, how the school was operated. That was a fundamental, pivotal mm-hmm. kind of part of it was the actual um, chastisement, if you want, um, if you want to call it that, and the way that discipline was administered. There were some very savage injuries as far as you found out weren't there yes there were in fact there's a was a report in the national archives where um one father had complained in 1967 about his son being caned and said that he nearly cried when he saw the injuries um you know to his son you know bleeding and welts and that side of things um but it wasn't just that i think it was the the sense of degradation as well it, it wasn't the actual you know the the, the physical beating it's, it's the kind of things that the you know uh, they were made to do such as you know and um, made to pick each other's noses you know one one man said and 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 also really kind of horrible things like um in the dining room being force fed but not only being force fed when somebody was ill then being you know fed you know <laughs> their vomit back i mean i don't know how much i can say about that but it's stuff like that that's really quite um sinister um it's the only way i can describe it and and it's that kind of thing where that affects people's lives i mean the person who told me about that says that he's had trouble swallowing his entire life as a result of that and you know this goes way back to when he was in the school between you know 1950 to 1956 Let's drill down a little bit further now, because there are one or two people that you can actually name on. I mean, in, in mm-hmm. their case, they're deceased. But even so, it just gives a, a very good illustration of the ethos at the time and the way that the De La Salle order at that time dealt with allegations. The Perhaps you could describe the, the one teacher who actually was convicted and what happened after that. 
Yes, uh, I mean, this was um, uh, the deputy headmaster, um, Brother Morris. Um, now, there's actually files in the Home Office that were, were unlocked you know, by the BBC, which said that um, in, in 1963, there had been complaints about him. Um, and this, this, this was previously to the headmaster, Brother Joseph, at the time. Um, but um, their actually legal advice had been taken that they didn't need to report that to the police. And that's actually despite Home Office guidance that had been issued in 1952, saying that any... Um, any, any sort of matter like this should be reported to the police. And then it was only um, a few months later when the mother herself actually reported it to the police directly that it was then um, dealt with and criminal proceedings started. Uh, but in the meantime, um, that brother had been moved up to a different school in Scotland. So, I mean, obviously in that time, we don't know whether anything else might, might have happened. Um, but it wasn't just that. Um, he was given three years probation and a year in a hospital. Um, and then back in 19 1969, there's letters saying how the, the provincial of the De La Salle order wanted to put him back into a, another school, um, and the Home Office is, is advising that that shouldn't happen. Um, but, I mean, that could have happened because he had actually been reinstated as a teacher by the Department of Education. So, it's we don't know whether he was involved in a school again in 1969 but there was that intention to actually you know have him teaching again we could have because he was indeed allowed to teach again and given the kind of the, the, the less sensitive and understanding landscape of the time it wouldn't be a surprise at all if he was put back into teaching at that time i think that's a perfect mm. illustration and it sort of brings on the kind of overview here is that with the inquiry that the Home Secretary has, has announced and we finally got at a, a, a third attempt a chair for, it's exactly this kind of um, case that the inquiry really should be looking into and forensically examine because there are still, who you've talked to some of them, many mm -hmm. people alive today who suffered at the hands of people at that school and, and who really still haven't achieved any degree of closure. Is that fair? No, that's definitely fair. Uh, I mean, uh, as I said, this goes all the way back to 1945. You know, you've got somebody who's in his uh, mid-80s there who's still, uh, you know, surviving with, uh, with with what happened to him, you know, still can't get to grips with the consequences. In fact, when I was interviewing him, his daughter said that some of the details she, she'd never heard herself before. Um, and it's because I think um, it, it was the type of power that, you know, these people had over these young boys. I mean, some of them, you know, they were 11, 12 years old and, uh, and you know and you're abused in that sort of situation in a school that's way out kind of in the middle of nowhere and then told you know don't tell anybody otherwise you know it, it'll get worse or if you do tell somebody then you'll be punished and you always carry that with you um, and it has been hard as well for some of the boys because Joe Riley who was um, sort of one of the first victims to kind of come forward said that he actually tried to report the abuse at the time. There was a small police station in, in Hartlebury nearby um, and he and a couple of the other boys um, went along there and posted a note through the door to say that, you know, um, we are being abused. Um, they actually put on it, you know, they're having sex with us. Um, anyway, um, he said that when they returned back to the school, they were then beaten really badly and he believes that was because it was the repercussions of trying to report it at the time. And not only that, he said that, you know, he 
um, his mother asked him about it because uh, one of um, his friends' uh, mothers also lives on the same street as her in Birmingham, and he'd said something. And while Joe denied it at the time, she still suspected that something was happening and and, and wrote um, to the archbishop at the time and also spoke to detectives that she knew in the area in Birmingham and said that you know nothing happened from that. So you've got that you know those that did try to report it almost being punished for it at the time, but then also later in life, some pupils yeah. told me they also so try to report it well, let's hold, hold that for a second because i want to come to that in a second but if you if you don't mind i mean yeah, no the bit the bit about um, um joe riley that you mentioned there taking it to the the local small police station and so forth and the repercussions of, of actually doing that very much fitted into the atmosphere at the time because my understanding was that the, these schoolboys were convicted of kind of petty crime Mm-hmm. They were sent to St Gilbert's because it was an approved school for people, for young people that were deemed to be a bit difficult. So essentially, mm-hmm. society would find it very difficult to believe them in the first place anyway, because they thought that they were miscreants and whatever mm-hmm. anyway, and petty criminals and young people, young juvenile offenders out of order. And they didn't look any deeper than that and obviously believe the adults 100% before they believe the children. Is that a fair analysis? I think that is, yeah. You know, sort of delinquents, tearaways, that's how they were seen. I mean, I've spoken to some people who lived in the area who... who contacted me since and said gosh they didn't realize you know quite what the school was about that you know they thought oh they've all done wrong you know and actually really tarred them with them uh, with a brush of, of sort of being proper criminals and in fact a lot of the crimes that they committed in the first place as you said were really really petty and in some cases this is only my belief I, I kind of feel that it was that you know they were difficult boys and actually this was almost a cheap way of, of providing care for, for boys boys who came from really, you know, um, troubled backgrounds, you know, not long after the war where, you know, the domestic problems, uh, a lot of the boys actually came from you know abusive backgrounds in the first place you know difficult family homes um so it almost becomes a bit of a cycle to that extent and in fact now where you know these people will be put into to, to care then it was almost like a a, a sort of a, a small prison it was sort of seen to the, the, these approved schools and even though there were no locks on the doors um it was the fear a lot of them that said that kept them in the place and because if you tried to run away you know you're brought back and then the consequences made you never want to run away again. Yeah, there were many instances of that that were reported to you, weren't there, of, of, of youngsters that did try and run away, and when they were caught and brought back again, they were really brutally beaten. Yes. Now, I, I interrupted you a little bit before because you were talking about a little bit more up-to-date kind of information about when the police were contacted by um, by somebody who had been there before and allegations were made. Could you tell us a little bit about that and when that was? Yeah, uh, this man only wants to be known as John, um, but he was um, both physically and sexually abused when he was at the school um, back in the um, early 60s. Uh, and he actually said around 12 years ago, he'd initially tried to phone the police and tell them about it. Um, they said that they'd call him back and, and they never did. It sort of worked out that it didn't happen. And, and, and as you can imagine, a lot of these people are reluctant to report it in the first place. It's very hard to get up that courage to actually contact somebody, you know, in the first instance. So that happened 12 years ago. 
ago. Um, but then as early as early last year, he then tried again. This time it was emails that he'd sent to the force. And he actually provided me um, the copies of the emails he'd sent, including the receipts um, to West Mercia, saying that they'd received them and he didn't hear anything. And they were quite clear in those emails that he was um, a survivor of abuse and had wanted to report what happened to him. And so he said that he felt completely ignored both back, you know, at the uh, 12 years ago and then, uh, and since as well that he'd originally reported it 12 years ago, his abuser died. So actually, if the police had taken action all that that time ago, there might have been a chance of him having some justice. But it was just that the way he said he, he was made to feel. He said that he felt, you know, dirty. He felt like scum. He's always felt like he's not been able to wash himself of what happened to him because, you know, he felt like he, he deserved it, is what he said, because, you know, he committed petty crimes um, and that he's never, ever been able to wash himself from that because he's never been listened to. And I just found that really, really sad. Um, and I just hope that now, you know, the police are investigating it and they are actually reviewing their procedures here at West Mercia because of his emails um, to make sure that anybody that reports this kind of crime is listened to. I hope that kind of gives him some sense of, of closure um, with that. But, you know, well, well what's your what's your understanding of the current police investigation? Well, um, I mean, it's going to be quite an extensive one. I mean, we're looking at historical documents, they say they've got to go through. Um, They're going around the country interviewing different people because obviously they live all over the place now. So trying to track people down, um, go and interview them. And they are doing that. And we actually followed them out to Northern Ireland when they uh, went to meet uh, Joe Riley. Um, Some of the officers have been back in touch with me to say that, you know, they want to visit certain people I've spoken to. Um, so they are they are actually investigating. I, I can tell, but it's just difficult because obviously it's priorities and resources. And we've spoken to the MP Tom Watson, who represents uh, West Bromwich East, and he's been very involved in um, this national inquiry. And he's very very doubtful about you know the resources that that West Mercia has. And he's not saying that they don't intend to do a good job. It's just whether they actually can. Um, and because you know we know through these files that brothers often moved around all over the country he seems to suggest there needs to be some sort of more uh, effort with different police forces all across the country and some sort of perhaps you know branch that links everything together um so that's the difficulty behind it you know what kind of scope can they have um with their team i mean i guess time will only tell with that and possibly it could become part of the recommendations of this historic abuse inquiry we hope because i I can't believe and nobody will believe that this is an isolated situation of historic abuse. I unfortunately think there are going to be many, many cases like this across and up and down the country. The the De La Salle order of Christian brothers has actually made a statement about things because they're still working at the moment and, and, and offering service. They say that the order reaffirms its unreserved condemnation of abusive behaviour and its unreserved apology to victims and their families, along with its commitment to support them. Um, what kind of support are you aware of that the, um, the order has been offering the survivors? 
Well, at the moment, I don't really know of, of, of any support, really, that they've offered the people I've spoken mm. to. Um, I know back in 2007, um, the daughter of one of the victims tried to contact their safeguarding officers and they sort of had, had said that they'd provided some sort of information to say that the certain brothers had passed away. But she felt, these are her own words, that she'd been kind of fobbed off, really, and that they hadn't provided her with enough information. I mean, uh, the De La Salle orders say they haven't got their own documents on the school and and they're all you know uh, held by by the home office and 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 the local council so they can't refer to them and that all the brothers um that were there in the late 50s early 60s have passed away um so obviously that's almost kind of sort of closing the door in a sense but then they do say they're working with the police and the police have told me that they are cooperating with the investigation so it's difficult to know if anything is happening behind the scenes um mm. but when it comes to sort of actually finding out more information it's it's very difficult and, and it's not it, it's not just the the order it's also with the home office documents because as i mentioned earlier you know some of them were due to be locked for for, for many years to come under this 70-year embargo um due to you know data protection but it's almost sort of well actually you know we're hearing all these allegations come forward it's in the public interest that these documents are opened and you know you can redact the information uh, when it comes to pupils names um but actually the details need to be known well because i imagine the police if they are um doing it as thoroughly as they say that they are and i know that there are resources um are resource issues within the sort of force the forces around because it does take an awful lot of time and and person power if you like to investigate this but all of these alleged abusers and in some case confirmed abusers um, had other lives, obviously, as well um, as the um, the jobs they had within um, St Gilbert's, and they were may some may have had families, or at least they might have had siblings who've had young children as well. I mean, the possibility that we know from working with people who abuse children is that there were many other children abused as well as the ones that they had this kind of teaching responsibility for, mm. um, and that could be an enormous great kind of um, hornet's nest to open up. Indeed. Well, there was one brother who um, actually left the order and went to work at a school elsewhere in the Midlands and then uh, went over to Australia after that. I mean, I haven't been able to to, to, to trace him much further. Um, I've obviously tried, um, but then later went on to, to have children um, and, you know, married and had children, but, but also um, was divorced. And I know for a fact his wife was a, a strict Catholic person. You've got to think there's a real good reason for somebody to divorce someone if you are a strict Catholic. So it does kind of make you wonder whether, you know, what happens in that situation. Um, but also, I mean, some of the, the documents themselves in the, the Home Office suggest um, that, you know, uh, this abuse went much further. For example, there was there was a brother um, who came to, the, to, to St Gilbert's from another school um, because of troubles there, it said. Um, he wasn't actually teaching at the school. In fact, he took over a whole dormitory to himself while the school was overcrowded and um, was driving around delivering aftercare to some of the boys um, who lived in the area. So you wonder, uh, you know, what was happening there? I mean, he was described by one of the Home Office inspectors several times as a disturbing influence. And he'd actually bullied some of the auditors at the school to, to meddle with the books. And you think, well, <laughs> it's all there. You know, you read between the lines. It doesn't say what's actually happening. But you, you just, you wonder, don't you? 
Okay, well, of course you do. Now, there's more probably to come out. I don't think we're naive enough to think that that's not going to be the case. What's, um, what are you and your colleagues doing at the moment to monitor that? And, and how do you envisage taking this forward? Well, we do have more people that have been contacting us. Um, it's always a, a slow procedure with this because, as I said, it takes a while to, to build up trust. You know, somebody might phone you and have a quick chat but not give you the full story, but you build up that relationship and eventually, you know, they, they tell you what happened to them. Um, and it has moved further forward in, into the 70s. Now, this becomes a bit more complicated because, you know, the council actually took over at this stage. Um, the brothers left the school in 19. 75 and the school closed in 85 um, and it got transferred from the home office all approved schools did in the early 70s so we're now obviously um, looking to our local council here Worcestershire County Council as part of this investigation I mean they have given me a statement to say they're cooperating you know with the police but they have some of their their own files as well which we're also trying to to get hold of so you know looking at that that's um something for the future but also um i've spoken to um uh, the woman who's behind the inquiry in northern ireland which has been looking into homes over there and she spent seven years campaigning for that inquiry um and that has very much involved the dallas l order um and there could be links between certain brothers as i mentioned because they were moved all around both the uk and also further afield um around the world so there could be connections the difficulty there is uh, is that they changed their names, she says. I mean, you've got some of the real names of the brothers in the Home Office files, but actually sort of connecting them isn't as easy as it seems. Okay. Well, let's see. a couple of things we have obviously got to be clear about is that there's no evidence that anybody that's working for De La Salle Order at the moment is in any way being accused of anything to do with abusing children. However, this is a historical situation where... There's an awful lot of unfinished business and an awful lot of things still we imagine to be uncovered and said. And a lot of people are going to have to cooperate, as you say, with the police investigation as it stands at the moment. So how would they get in touch, anybody that wants to, with you or your colleagues, um, if anybody listening to this had some more information that might help um, to kind of complete the jigsaw? Yes, well, we encourage anybody to, to get in touch with us. Obviously, we also encourage them to contact the police investigation too. That's something I want to, to make clear. Um, but, you know, if they want to, you know, tell us about it, I mean, they, they can contact us di directly here. I mean, would you like me to give out yes, numbers, yeah, for example? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, they can contact our um, direct, us directly here at BBC Hereford and Worcester on 01905 748 so that's 01905 or they can email us at uh, bbchw at bbc.co.uk. And that comes straight through to us here, um, journalists at BBC Hereford and Worcester. And obviously, we keep any information um, uh, to ourselves. You know, we, we respect people's, um, you know, their dignity and also uh, their privacy if they don't want their details to be, to be broadcast. We're not expecting everybody to be interviewed, but if they have any information that might help us track people down or with this investigation, then do get in touch. Okay. Now, I, I do understand and I know from talking to you yourself that you're a very busy woman and that you're also being involved in other matters um, quite soon, actually, for, uh, for a few months. And some of your colleagues are going to be supporting you from, you know, on this matter if stuff comes up. So is there any name or any particular way that anybody should identify 
you know, who they should speak to if it comes up. I mean, I take your point about contact the police first uh, if, if you've got any information that would assist their inquiry. And I'm guessing that you're going to make available in time to the historic abuse inquiry nationally that's going on anything that uh, would be relevant to that. But in the meantime, from a BBC point of view, is there any other name or person that you know of that might well be contacted, able to be contacted in your absence? Yes, if they ask for James Pearson, he's a journalist here who's already very much across the, the story and also has been digging himself on very similar matters. Um, and they can also ask for me as well. I'll also be available as Pam Caulfield. So Pam Caulfield or James Pearson are the people to ask for. All right, Pam, I'm sure this is not the last we're going to hear about this, but thanks ever so much for, uh, for talking to us today and good luck. Not at all, David. Thank you very much for having me. Well, there we are. Now, that's a story I want to keep on top of. So I want to actually continue um, coming back to it as time goes by, because I think there's plenty more to come. We've only touched maybe the 60s and the 70s, or the 50s, 60s, 70s, and, and we've still got possible other issues to come forward that don't quite know yet. I'm told that West Mercia, police who are the uh, force leading this, are deep now into a, a, a serious investigation, and some might say about time. Um, so we'll begin to look at that as it comes forward, and we'll report back on that. But I think it's good for us to have a live case, especially with this landscape of historic abuse inquiry going on, and I seriously hope that this case is referred to the, uh, the, the National Inquiry as well. So there we are. Number 50 podcast, my goodness. Anyway, it's been a pleasure having you as your, having your company. Uh, my thanks to Alba Digital Media, as always, for the technical side of this podcast. You can, of course, download it from iTunes, Stitcher, Podfeed, and, of course, the website socialworldpodcast.com. It's uh, good to have you. Look forward to 51. All the best. <laughs>